This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, November 2nd, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The antitrust case against Google is a bit of an odd one. It claims at once that the company has a monopoly in search, but not in the method of delivering those searches to actual users. So does the case stand up to scrutiny? Jeffrey Manny is the president and founder of the International Center for Law and Economics. We talked about the case against Google last week. How did we get to this point with this uh, big lawsuit against Google being cheerled by uh many members of the Senate and many uh, activists who believe they're being treated poorly uh, by the company. And and what led us here? Well, I think you're right to point to non-antitrust sort of origins here, but I wouldn't suggest that there are no antitrust origins to the suit. Um, so, so let me take it in kind of two parts. Uh, on the one hand, what has led us here is, as you suggest, a political, a sense that there is political value in criticizing and hamstringing and showing aggression against these large tech companies. Um, we can and should go into more of the details of the reason for that, but let's just you know, just leave it there for now. There is a clear political impetus behind this. And of course, as has been pointed out many times, this particular suit was not actually handled by the head of the antitrust division at the DOJ. It was it was led by uh, the attorney general himself. There's uh, been some stories about some resistance from long-term staff members in the, the antitrust division uh, to this suit, uh, suggesting it's not quite ready for prime time. In any case, uh, it's clear that the politics is partly behind this. Part of the background, I should also say, if listeners don't know, is the very recent release of the House Judiciary Committee's uh, report, staff report, competition in digital markets. This came out earlier this month. It was signed not by any members of Congress per se, but it was a, a staff report. And it's full of all kinds of claims of, of you know parade of horrors that these companies, not just Google, have uh, visited upon the world. Again, uh, not a very strong antitrust argument being made in, in most cases in that report, uh, but, but apparently the perception that there's political value in, in making these arguments. So to the extent that this case continues to move forward, what are the substantive, substantive claims that are being made that uh, uh, the proponents argue is makes this a legitimate antitrust case. Absolutely right. There is a legitimate or, or um, you know, a colorable antitrust claim here. And, and it should also be noted, um, this case probably isn't the last that we'll see against Google. Um, there is a case in the works being being worked up by uh, a number of Democratic state attorneys general. Th this this suit, for, for those who don't know, was brought by the Department of Justice, but also signed on by uh, a few Republican state attorneys general. There's a separate case um, allegedly being drawn up by Democratic state attorneys general, and yet another case um, on a different part of Google's market that's that's in the works apparently being led by uh, the Texas uh, Republican attorney general, but also apparently with interest from other states. So 
those may be political as well, of course, but these are folks who are, you know, who have reputations that are, uh, they seek to protect and, and who know something about antitrust. And that goes for the DOJ to some extent too. So yeah, there's a real meat to the substance of this. Evaluate this statement in light of the relative controversy surrounding it. The first rule of antitrust is to define the relevant market. Yeah, I think it's uh, not remotely controversial. That is certainly um, the beginning of any antitrust case, and it's particularly relevant here. This case was brought um, against Google Search. Google obviously has a lot of uh, services that it offers, but in this case, the issue is allegedly uh, its monopolization of the general search market. Um, so the DOJ defines the market, it, it defines a couple of relevant markets here. There's the general search market. That market includes Google and Bing and DuckDuckGo and, you know, a few other general search providers, but doesn't include anyone else. Doesn't include anyone who provides any sort of specialized search service. Uh, doesn't include uh, Siri which is powered by Google, but, but has different functions. Um, the second market the DOJ defines here is a search advertising market. And, and that's where we start to get, um, in things get a little bit messy and particularly important. This is what's usually called a two-sided market. Search offers functionality for users. We all know it well. Um, searches also offers functionality for advertisers. It's a mechanism by which advertisers can target potential consumers and, uh, and reach them. Uh, so according to the DOJ, there's a, a sort of a separate market for the consumer facing side here, the, the, those of us who use Google search, um, and then another market that would presumably affect advertisers, the search advertising market. The argument there is that uh, Google, um, you know, controls this uniquely important advertising market that doesn't substitute for other advertising markets and has the power to raise prices, presumably to advertisers. All right. So uh, what is the claim in suggesting that uh, Google has this power within the search market? Yeah. So so here's what's What's so interesting about the the relevant market definition in this case, um, the argument is that Google has power, market power in the search and search advertising market. Um, the weird thing is that the arguments in the case all turn on having power in the search distribution market, if, if there is such a market, in the mechanisms by which um, uh, search services are distributed to users. Um, so uh, perhaps most obvious among these would be uh, your browser. When you open up your browser, um, it has a default search service usually built in. And if you don't want to use the default service, you can change it to another one, or you can always navigate to the, the homepage of a different uh, search provider. So the browser is a uh, distribution method for distributing search. Uh, your phone is another method. Most phones, maybe all phones, come with a search uh, service sort of built into the default. Uh, well, the, the phone comes with a browser and that browser has a default search service built into it. But also if you have uh, an Android phone, 
there's a you know sort of a separate box uh, for Google search so directly from the home page of the phone and something comparable exists on iPhones as well. So the the argument in the case is that uh, Google has tied up the mechanisms of distribution of search such that competing search services, let's just say Bing, Bing is the most obvious competitor here. They're kind of the, they're going to be the stand-in for the competitors who are allegedly harmed here. Bing can't reach consumers because um, Google had, we'll talk about how, but Google has, has monopolized, tied up this search distribution market. But this is the weird thing. Google's alleged market power is in search. It's, it's not in the distribution of search. Um, and as I started to point out, there are lots of ways that you can get access to uh, a general search provider. And Google doesn't own very many of them. And uh, certainly, it would, I think, be pretty hard to argue that Google has a monopoly share of distribution mechanisms, um, some of which are literally owned by Apple a pretty substantial share of which are literally owned by Apple. Microsoft itself, which owns Bing, also a pretty substantial player in the uh, in the search distribution market. So um, we can talk more about the, the sort of theory of the case, but I think it is right to point to this market definition question and start to wonder exactly how the case is being constructed uh, when the alleged market power exists in a market where the bad behavior doesn't seem to be occurring. If Google has a monopoly in search and uh, must depend on uh, other companies for the bulk of the distribution of that search that is through browsers and uh, other means, what connects them? What, what would uh, the antitrust case connecting those things be? Yeah, so let's use um, the Apple iPhone as representative example here. Um, we can talk about other distribution methods, but that one's sort of the cleanest. Um, the argument here is that Google pays Apple uh, something on the order of $11 billion a year to be the default search provider on iOS devices, so iPhones and iPads. Um, by paying this $11 billion a year, uh, Google gets this default position on the iPhone. This is what it buys. What that means is that um, when you get your iPhone from the Apple store and you turn it on, uh, Bing is not pre-installed on that phone. That's it. <laughs> There's no exclusivity agreement. There's no requirement that um, prevents Apple from allowing users to install Bing on their phone. Uh, there is nothing that uh, requires Apple to prevent users from changing the default search provider. And indeed, it's quite easy to do so on, on iPhones and on Android devices. All Google gets for its $11 billion payment to Apple is a, you could say, um, a very, very brief exclusionary period. In other words, the period between when you turn on your phone and however long it would take you to install a different search service on your phone, let's say 30 seconds, um, Google has, has absolute control over search on the phone for that period of time. And it 
pays $11 billion for the privilege. Now, what's so what's to me kind of uh, a red flag in this is um, we don't we don't usually see monopolists paying someone else $11 billion as a consequence of their monopoly, $11 billion a year. Now, you know, there's, there's a story you can tell here. It's all about preserving their monopoly power. Um, but this is where this, this kind of strangeness of the, mar- of the market definition comes into play. Apple maybe has a, uh, a monopoly. Well, Apple has a monopoly over Apple devices. Now, that's not a relevant antitrust market. But, you know, Apple controls a substantial share of this distribution market. They, I think it's, I think, I can't remember if it's 40 or 60% of uh, smartphones in the US are, are Apple devices. That's a big share. Um, but that's Apple's share. That's, that's not Google's share. And Google maybe is trying to sort of take advantage of, uh, enter into an agreement with Apple to um, uh, use its power to preserve its own power. Um, but if so, it's doing a really bad job of it. Because all it's buying is this, let's say, 30-second exclusionary period, after which um, Apple is not in any way prohibited, nor are users, from installing other search devices, other search services on the phone. And it could be potentially damaging for Apple to cripple its devices in such a way that that is an exclusive arrangement. No question that Apple would have no interest in in. Well, I shouldn't say no question, but I, I mean, I'm sure at some price they'd be interested. But but uh, I don't think Apple has an interest in uh, preventing users from installing, from using other search providers on its phones. Um, and yeah, indeed, it's Apple's interest in preserving the quality of its devices and its you know sort of ecosystem uh, that perhaps imposes this constraint. But then let's you know be aware um, that's something that usually comes with having power, right? That's, you know, if Google really had market power, wouldn't it be able to impose on Apple a, a requirement that it hobble its devices in such a way that it, um, uh, it gives real exclusivity to Google? Um, you know, another, so, so that goes to this, you know, sort of market definition question and where the power lies and whether this is a, a, a viable, uh, case on its face. Um, but it also starts to get to the question of, uh, of sort of the, well, the extent of harm, even if it's true, even if all of this is true and and there's no problem in the way the market is defined and, and this is indeed exclusionary conduct. What's the harm here? Um, uh, so there's a, there's a kind of a, a simple version of this, which is, which just says, um, Bing, can't get sufficient distribution uh, to reach enough consumers that they use Bing. They just, they don't know it exists or something. I don't know exactly what it is. I mean, obviously people know Bing exists, but, um, but that's a weird argument uh, because it's so easy to change the default. Uh, As long as people know Bing does exist. And as far as I know, everyone knows Bing exists. If they think it's a better search service, they can just install it on their phones. The cost is, essentially zero. Like I said, it's like 30 seconds of time, a couple of clicks on your, on your phone. Um, so, so what's the harm? Who's being, how is Bing being harmed here? Um, and if Bing isn't being harmed, how are users being harmed? 
How is Apple being? Apple's certainly not being harmed. They're getting $11 billion a year from that. I want to try to draw some parallels here. Uh, sure. One, uh, Coca-Cola has a huge market share. Uh, Anheuser-Busch and all of the InBev products that are owned by Anheuser-Busch, huge market share. Mm-hmm. Um, and the browser wars that we saw in the 1990s. Yep. What, you know, how similar is this fight over search, search distribution, and the claim that a company like Google, uh, w- where people can easily switch away from uh, their products, their services, uh, how similar is it to those examples where, like you said, if if Google is trying to preserve its monopoly power, well, then yes, it would make sense for a company like Anheuser-Busch or Coca-Cola to buy very expensive branding style uh, advertising, which Google does as well. And in the browser wars of the 1990s, we saw this fight over And in retrospect, it's not even really clear to me what they were fighting over, except you're using our thing. And at some point, we might be able to turn that into money. You're right to draw the parallels and you're and you're right to to point out um, the most important parallel, which is the silliness of the the arguments around the cola wars and the browser wars. Um, So let's start with the cola example. Um, In order for there to be an analogy with sort of Coke and Pepsi here, uh, you'd have to have a situation in which um, Coca-Cola owned or had agreements with every mechanism by which soda was, not every, but enough of the mechanisms by which soda was distributed to to um, to consumers uh, that Pepsi just couldn't get a, a, a foothold. Um, uh, we know that's not the case, right? Because Pepsi is available essentially everywhere, partly because even though Coca-Cola does own many of its distributors, it doesn't have the power to prevent other distributors from distributing Pepsi. It doesn't have the power to prevent 7-Eleven from carrying Pepsi products as well as Coca-Cola products. It may have some power to put Coca-Cola products at the very front of the store and indeed if you go to your local grocery store, even today, you'll see the end cap of the grocery store aisle often will have either Coke or Pepsi. And in any given week, chances are it will have Coke or Pepsi alternating uh, at the very end of the aisle. They're trying to encourage you to purchase Coke, right? But all you have to do is walk three feet down the aisle to get to the Pepsi. That's pretty much the situation we're in here. All you have to do is walk three feet down the aisle, which is to say, 30 seconds of, you know, tapping on your phone uh, to get Bing. It's really hard to see how any kind of power that Coke might have or Google might have prevents users from accessing its uh, its competitors. Oh, I, I actually, I wanted to make, raise one thing. Um, occasionally, the, the soda company, Coca-Cola or Pepsi, um, may actually be able to so constrain distribution that it monopolizes the market. And um, a great example of this was Venezuela in the 90s. I think it was the 90s. Maybe it was the 80s, where Coca- Venezuela was essentially dominated by Pepsi. Um, Pepsi did something to piss off the government, and Coca-Cola saw an opportunity and essentially, almost literally overnight, came into the country, replaced every Pepsi 
refrigerator in every store with a Coca-Cola refrigerator, took all of the Pepsi products out of the, essentially out of the country, replaced them with Coke, and people woke up the next morning and you couldn't get a Pepsi. All you could get was a Coca-Cola. That's real monopolization. Um, and usually it takes a sort of totalitarian government to facilitate that kind of thing. I don't think that's what we have in the U.S. in either the Cola Wars or... Where do you expect this case to go? Great question. I, um, I, I don't think very much of this case. I, I, I think it's a poorly constructed case. I, I, I think in particular the, um, the, the fact that there is no real foreclosure of, of distribution by competitors pretty much decimates this case and makes it um, a non-starter. Um, well, I shouldn't say a non-starter, but, but makes it a non-winner. So I have to wonder whether the politics is what really predominates in the, in, in this case. And that once it's political value is passed, um, it's actual legal value kind of disappears and, and the case doesn't go anywhere. Um, I think that's a possible outcome. I, I, you know, I'm not very good at predicting the future, but, um, uh, you know, I think it's not coincidental that the case was brought just before the election. I, you know, we already talked a little bit about the political background of it. Um, and, uh, at least as it's currently constructed, I don't see this case being, uh, something that, that anybody puts a lot of weight behind. Now it, it could be changed, right? I mean, complaints can be amended. Um, there other parties can be brought in. As I said, there's a group of democratic attorneys general who are bringing, uh, an analogous case. Um, uh, I suspect that the most likely thing to happen with this case is that it ultimately gets taken over by what may be a, a, a better case, um, being, being ginned up by these Democrat state attorneys general that they meld the cases together. And this aspect, at least of the case, the sort of what, what this DOJ case is limited to, I think it kind of falls away. Um, which isn't to say that I think there are great arguments about the other claims that could be brought, but there are at least other claim, better claims that could be brought. Jeffrey Manny is the president and founder of the International Center for Law and Economics. We spoke last week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 